parfait. Game day seven of Italian 90. We are going to jump into three very interesting games here today. The hosts in action later on against the USA. Uh, before that, we'll have Cameroon and Romania. But first, we start off with Yugoslavia and Colombia. A couple of entertaining sides here. We talked in a good bit of detail about Yugoslavia, about the sort of background to them. Obviously, nationalism on the rise, pretty much on its last legs, Yugoslavia at this point. But I think, I mean, we talked about some of the riots. We talked a little bit about the, the Netherlands friendly, for those who don't remember. Obviously, the supporter the croat supporters in the in the crowd booing their home team cheering netherlands you know waving the dutch flags because it was similar to the croat flag all that kind of stuff you wonder how many croat supporters actually went over to the tournament is is this big tournament like this you'd love to get across and enjoy it in some capacity do you go over and boo your team do you just go to the dutch games maybe instead can you imagine the confusion in the stands of sort of like the croats and the neapolitans and all these different sects of the countries cheering on different teams or booing their own team or being against their own team. It's just a bizarre thing to think of. But anyway, Dave, let's get on to this game. And- yeah, I suppose, Owen, it's, um, it's interesting, I suppose, going into the game in terms of how both countries in the midst of, of some amount of turmoil and probably two of the more, I guess, scenes that we look back on maybe more than at the time as being just outrageously talented. I mean, if you look on the two sides, you know, you have players who'd won that Youth World Cup, the likes of Boxic and Prozanevsky Shukair on, on the Yugoslavian side. We maybe were still a little bit on, on the fringes. And then you look at Colombia, you have the likes of, you know, Valderrama, who in the first game uh, scored such a good goal and, you know, just looking down through the team. Freddie Rincon and, you know, top-class players. Andres Escobar, we might hear more about him in the future. Uh, Rene Higuita in goal, obviously. And it's, you know, it's two two very strong teams and I think they, they were kind of evenly matched. Should be said as well, realistically, Yugoslavia will have to be thinking they have to win it, of course, if you don't remember. Colombia are after beating UAE, but <coughs> Yugoslavia have been trounced by Germany 4-1, West Germany 4-1. So this is, this is a game Yugoslavia very much need to, to get points on the board for. In hindsight, anyway, I think it's obvious that the UAE game was a gimme for everyone. I guess going into the game, Yugoslavia, obviously, yeah, you know, they they really needed to get at least at least the draw to have any chance of getting tripped in the next round. And what a goal that actually won it! Just absolutely outstanding from Jozic. I think I think it was Stojkovic, maybe who 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 chipped the ball into him, but then amazing chest control and a. Beautiful volley that leaves Kogita with no chance. And then, I suppose, towards the end of the game, as seems to be becoming a, a team in this World Cup, or at least in the last couple of days, is uh, just the, the flying handball, the you know majestic, uh, complete complete disregard for the rules of the game, hand, handball in the in the box. On that occasion, it was uh, Hatsibegic, uh, one of those rare defenders who takes penalties. So a fairly tame effort saved by Kogita. It wasn't enough for Colombia because Yugoslavia did, did run away with the three points in the end. It's, a, it's an interesting one just when you mentioned the handball and the season penalty. The only thing for people who would have um, seen something like it in more recent years, remember Umtiti against um, Australia in recent years? He just threw the arm up for seemingly no reason. It was one of those weird ones. Like, why have you, why have you done that? Like, absolutely headless. And also Higita. Again, the funny thing about Higita watching this back is we mentioned he's sort of like the original Swedish. Well, he was allowed to use his hands, wasn't he? 
Yeah, exactly. But he doesn't. <laughs> this is the thing. Once he saves the penalty, he doesn't pick it up. He he starts sort of he, he kind of he doesn't even roll it out or touch it. He sort of pans it along the floor like in this really bizarre way, and then kicks it. And he, he's such an interesting player to watch. Uh, if you had a player cam back in those days, he's the one you just basically watch what he's up to when the ball's nowhere near him. You know, he kind of looks like a cat when he's doing it. He's just sort of like yeah. you know playing the playing the ball, ball of wool along the ground. I read a, a quote from, I think it was the Irish Times, Paddy Agnew, uh, who's over in Bologna watching the game. and He, he says, it could, be the, it could be that the West Germany game is their last of the tournament, Colombia's last of the tournament after losing here, which would be a pity since their goalkeeper, Higuita, is not only a showman and an eccentric, but a remarkable athlete and a good goalkeeper. Good goalkeeper in their last as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it, this is the thing, he's just, he, he's one of those players, I'm not sure we've had as many of them in, in recent years. Like You wouldn't say Neuer is... Is dynamite to watch, you know what I mean? He's he's just fine. He just does what he does. If you've never seen it before, it's it's incredible. But Higita was understatement just, of the century. Yeah, but Higita is just is just you just want to watch him all the time to see how unorthodox everything he does is, you know. Let's go to Cameroon, Romania. Then I, I suppose when once everything is at, at two points, it, most of these were sort of must not lose games. But uh, Terlock, you're going to take us through this one. Pretty much, although. Again, given the fact that there were four of the best third-place teams were going through, you still had a bit of a chance, even if you lost your first two games. But uh, yeah, this one took place at the San Nicolas in Bari. Officially, the stadium was almost full for this, but from the footage you can see it's, it's at least half empty. Um, there was a, a lot of discussion around that. It's, it's pretty much for the reason you might expect. Basically, Italian organisers sold or sent a bunch of tickets to corporates and corporates didn't turn up. We've seen, uh, we've seen that trick used in recent years, haven't we? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it happened at a pretty tumultuous time in Romania. There were riots actually, got what were later known as the Mineriad riots going on in Romania on the day of this game um, between miners who were loyal to the current government and, and anti-government protesters. That's a huge event in Romanian history. Some, I think, manager Zhenai blamed aspects of Romania's performance on the... the the tumultuous events back home, which I'm not sure quite how credible that is. But it certainly, it didn't show on either side in the first game, in the first half, because it was a complete and utter, utter non-event. Really not, nothing of note happened in it. Uh, Makinaki broke through at one, at one stage. Good save by Silvio Lung. That was really the only chance in the first half. Haji was anonymous. Haji had been suspended for the first game, but had just co- had come into the squad or, or into the side for this. He was already the golden boy of Romanian football, but didn't contribute a whole lot, either in the first or the second half. Just on Georgie Hadji, I mean, Dave, you talked him up in the last podcast, and now, I mean, uh, as Tarlox pointed out, the manager is blaming a lot of different elements, and, and one of them is Georgie Hadji, because he says on him, he had not played in the first match. I thought that in the second match, he would, give it, he would be giving his best. So, not even giving his best here, Dave. What's going on? You, you, you vouched for this guy. Like. Yeah, I, I think uh, he's, he's one of those kind of... Uh, we often see kind of the mercurial talent. They're always um, under pressure to perform in tournaments, and they often don't. I mean, we can only look at you know the, the talk around Messi. I guess over the past four World Cups, that almost before the tournament starts, people are already talking about how bad he's playing, and it's one of those things. And, and you know, even when he does play well and bring them a long way, it's still kind of like, well, he should have done better. And I think uh, maybe there's a bit of that about Haji as well. That kind of language style, the fact that he, you know, leads almost without looking like he's leading, it's, uh, it, can, it can work against you in certain ways. 
I think the Romanian players had something of an excuse in that they were Romanian football basically had just been opened up to uh, Western European clubs um, and there were agents hanging around like vultures. But I think Hadji had already signed a contract with Real Madrid. So I don't think that was, that, was an ex that excuse applied to him. But anyway, again, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to flag a possibly significant substitution because after 59 minutes, Roger Miller gets the call from Valerie Nepomniachi. He replaces Mabawang. Roger Miller, will we go into the ballad of Roger Miller? He was a legend of Cameroonian football, a legend of African football. But at this stage, he was 38 years old. He'd been called up to the squad on the insistence of the, of the president of Cameroon, Paul Bia, who is still the president of Cameroon today at the age of 87. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can draw your own conclusions from that. He'd been playing... On the, in the Indian Ocean with Reunion. So he had been out of serious competitive football for a good while. But I have to say, even just watching his early, his early movements here, he doesn't move like a man of 38. He's incredibly spry. He's incredibly athletic and fast. And he makes the breakthrough. After 76 minutes, there's a, a long ball. And the bounce does Andone. It's a, it's a kind of a funny bounce, but Miller's alive to it. Uh, he just barges Andone out of the way, um, keeps his balance, and slots one past, past um, Lone. A very, very impressive goal for a guy who was obviously champing at the bit to get his first taste of the World Cup for, for eight years. He felt very hard done by by Cameroon being knocked out in 82 despite not losing a game. So Romania really should equalise shortly thereafter. Balint, who's come on as a, as a substitute, uh, he pulls off a real kind of street football trick where he, he juggles the ball three times on the right-hand flank and then hooks it over his head into the box. Lakatouche gets to it eight yards out, but he skims the header wide. He really should equalise. And then just 10 minutes later, Miller gets his second. And this is actually one of the goals in his entire career of which he's most proud. And it is quite extraordinary if you watch it back in detail. He clips the ball through to Oman Biak. Oman Biak jumps for it with the late Michael Klein, who died a few years later, but neither of them actually made contact. And Miller follows up his own ball. He takes a really elegant touch past the defender and then just powers it past Lung at the near post. And as he notes himself, it's not many players could assist their own goal, which is essentially what he did. But he was such, a, such an alert player that even when he'd you know, clipped the ball into another striker, he was still moving in anticipation of what might happen. And it paid off for him. And yeah, so within 15 minutes of coming on, he'd already made himself one of the stories of the World Cup. We'd already seen his famous wiggle celebration at the corner flag twice, um, something that would lodge in the popular memory for decades thereafter. Um, Romania do pull one back late on. Dumitrescu clips it in to Balint. Um, he takes it down and shoots really through Thomas and Kono in the Cameroonian goal on the slide. Watching it back, he's clearly offside, particularly by the, the 1990 rule book, but uh, the goal stands. But there is no further scoring, there's no further chances, and the reaction, not just in Cameroon, I know we were all very annoyed in 2010 when South Africa's goal was proclaimed as a goal for all Africa, but there are reports of wild celebrations in, in Gabon, in Ivory Coast, and other parts of Africa, because Cameroon have effectively in fact, have sealed their place in the second round and speed a really impressive performance. You know, for Roger Mia, right? 38 going into that. And 
somebody must have almost certainly said, oh, he's sort of he's lost a yard of pace, but he's still he's still springing beyond uh, Androne for these two goals. Like it's absolutely incredible when you look back at it. You think that happens with nearly every modern striker now that they're like, oh, he's lost a yard. It's like you don't need a yard. You just need to be able to wiggle down to the corner flag. <laughs> well, I think another factor was probably that the baseline speed and fitness of a footballer was a bit lower. Mm. So I think if you were an exceptional athlete, athlete like Roger Milley, you could still be competitive at 38. Although there were some who speculated that he was well over 38 in 1990, that in fact he may have been as old as 42. I don't think there's any truth in that because that would mean he was 46 at USA 94 when he also scored. Mm. He was just an incredible individual stay at the top and stay as sharp and alert and hungry, I suppose, for football for as long as he did. He's doing himself out of a record there as well, considering Peter Shilton would have been 40 <laughs> years old at this World Cup. So he should have just, if that Peter is true. Peter Shilton, born in 1949. Oh my God. Let's, let's talk about um, Thomas Kono. I can't remember how much we talked about him already, actually. We might have given a little reference at the start and we might have even pointed out that he was the player that inspired Gigi Buffon to become a goalkeeper, which is quite incredible uh, for the previous game, for the Argentina game. But also, he was incredible in this game. I mean, he was the second choice coming into this, and the only reason he managed to feature was because the original goalkeeper, his name escapes my mind, he, he basically yeah. went off on one, uh, thinking a, a touch of sort of uh, Cameroonian Saipan about this, because like, he essentially lays into the, the confederation and, and to his own players and... Uh, I think because he was one of the players of the year or in the team of the year in France, he thought, look, I have enough sway to get away with this. Didn't get away with it. And I think a lot of the players even alleged that he was sort of telling porkies at that point as well. So it's a brilliant case of self-destruction. But it also would have been... I mean, it's, it's akin, I suppose, if Roy Keane had done that and Colin Healy had gotten the team in 2002 and then Colin Healy had got on, had an absolute storm of a World Cup, you know? Well, I think it's, it's to, be, to be more pedantic about the, about the comparison, um, Nkono actually refused to play initially when he was told he was being put into the side against Argentina at short notice. He said, I'm, I'm not mentally prepared. You have to go with your first choice. And it was only his wife who talked him around. So uh, I can't imagine Colin Healy refusing to get on the plane. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it is, there, there is, a, there is, um, yeah, there, is a, there are cadences of Saipan about it for sure. Absolutely outrageous thing for your backup goalkeeper to say, I'm not mentally prepared. I never thought I'd be playing. Don't put me in. Let's get on to the hosts. They take on USA. A game so big that the Pope moved his procession an hour earlier so Italians could watch it on TV. Again, let's get into the, just a little bit of the build-up to this game, which we probably could have put at the start, but I think it, it's better served here when we're previewing the team. Some backstory about the US trying to get their sort of training area. They, they looked to book uh, Coverciano, which is the, the training centre of Italy, located just outside Florence. Bob Gansler wanted somewhere sort of secluded or sequestered so that they weren't going to be hassled by press. And I would have thought off the bat, the, I mean, where's most of the press going to be? Is that Italy's home training ground? But they wanted to go there anyway. Once they were drawn in the same group as Italy, unfortunately, they weren't allowed to trade there anymore. Italy obviously didn't want them around. They ended up sort of just accepting somewhere the Italians gave them after that, which was an Olympic training ground in Torino. And, uh, I mean, I'm looking at the quotes for this. There's a whole bunch of, of different takes you can find on this place. But they say it was like a prison. And any time you wanted to go out, you had to have a prison guard go outside the training complex with you. Not ideal. There, there's lots of talk that 
the facilities weren't amazing. Essentially, the, the, the hotel, the cafeteria, and most of the other facilities of the compound were absolutely shite. And the US were pretty devastated. They were looking around on TV at all of these like professional athletes in their five-star hotels. But they essentially didn't have a chance to, to scout it beforehand, so they just went with it. They had thought their best chance was against Czechoslovakia as well. So if you think back to Ireland in 2012, when we were smashed by Croatia out of the gates after we'd gone, beat Croatia, get two draws. I imagine the US were feeling a little bit concerned like that. Tensions were so high that it even led to a brawl on the training ground uh, where Eric Eichmann and Bruce Murray clashed, uh, apparently vying for the same spot. Bruce thought that Eric made him look a bit of a kipper in training at times. So he's trying to defend his, his starting spot and they end up getting into a scrap. Uh, Peter Ver, uh, Vermis recalls it saying basically, it, he calls it an all-team brawl, which is fantastic. Just these two guys vying for a, a train, one spot end up having a bit of a set two and then the whole team piles in apparently. They also, he also claims though, Peter does, that it was a, a turning point, a mass relief of negativity. And that the funny thing is 10 minutes or so later that all the US dignitaries, including the sort of, association president vice president and a bunch more turned up to watch the training and just by about 10 minutes missed this huge meltdown in the u.s camp so that's the sort of background for the u.s not coming into this absolutely ideally the last thing actually on their way to the stadium there was some sort of threat made on the team so they uh, again how real that is maybe the, the italians were just trying to ramp up the fear of everything they end up being escorted with police helicopters and a huge police presence to rome Meanwhile, you look at the Italy side of things, and uh, it's it's good old Azeglio Vicini, who's who's announced an unchanged lineup, which seems very peculiar considering his misfiring strikers after the Austria game. You would think USA game is, is a good time maybe to switch it up, get a few people in. Carnivale obviously didn't have a great game. He's quoted in the press a beautiful quote, I thought, uh, saying the night after the Austria game, I slept so badly those misses haunted me. So, you know, get that man straight into the starting 11. He sounds like he's, he's full of confidence. The thing we might have left out here, I can't remember, did we talk about this? Italy brought six strikers to this tournament. One well, fewer than Ireland. Ireland brought seven. Yeah, but, but well, Noel Quinn's a yeah, goalkeeper. We weren't leaving Roberto Baggio on the bench every game. <laughs> and don't forget, Noel Quinn's a goalkeeper, so that doesn't count. But just to run through the strikers Italy brought, Viali, Carnevale, Robbie Baggio, Toto Scalacci, then also Roberto Mancini and Aldo Serena. So... That's one from Juventus, two with Baggio, given that he's just sort of made a switch. So two from Juve, one from Napoli, two from Sampdoria, and then one from Inter. Probably a bit of an indication here as to why they haven't really blended that well together. Because, I mean, firstly, they didn't go through the qualifiers for this tournament because they hosted it. They didn't go through the qualifiers for the previous tournament because they were World Cup holders. They'd won the tournament before that. So they've got all these strikers. Very few of them play together bar the Sampdoria pair. And then they've not done it. Quite. So is this, do you think, Turnock, this is maybe an indication as to why Italy were maybe a little bit misfiring at this point? I think it is, but it's also an indication that, that nothing had gone right up front for quite a long time. As I said, I think they'd, they'd only scored two goals and six friendlies before the World Cup and they tried every combination possible. But it does seem extraordinary when you have that many options that when you've identified you know, the, the forward line as the problem area of the game, as a, of the team, as it was against Austria, that you wouldn't shuffle the pack ahead of a game that you're kind of expecting to be shooting practice. I mean, the last time Italy had played the, the USA wasn't an official friendly for the uh, official game for Italian purposes, I think. They'd won 10-0. Um, 
one of the, I was just reading a quote from, one, I think, Murray, one of the American players, saying they were expecting to get a lambasting, as he put it. Um, so, again, uh, yeah, it does seem particularly unadventurous not to explore those options when you have so much firepower in the squad. And, and let me give you this, right? Two of those players that I mentioned there, they were in the top six scores of Serie A. They're the only two Italians in there. So you've got like Van Basten and Klinsman and Maradona and Rudy Voller and all. The only two in it, Baggio and Todos Scalacci. No, Chuck Carnevale back in after he's saying that he's had a shit sleep and that he's haunted and that, you know what I mean? Let's put this tortured soul up front. Let's get into the highlights. The atmosphere, obviously, really, really something again in Rome. They're, they're baying for blood and baying for goals at this point. And, and 11 minutes in, they, they get that. A little bit of fortune about this one is Donadoni miscontrols uh, Bergami's pass off his knee. It sort of bounces towards Viali, who, who cleverly dummies the ball and lets it run through to Giuseppe Giannini, who knocks it beyond two defenders with his first touch and smashes past Tony Miola on his left with the second touch. Later on, there's a penalty in the game, a chance to make it two, as Nicola Berti uh, was brought down by Paul Caliguri who actually does sound Italian when you're talking about it like this, but he's American. He, he sort of, it's one of those, he sticks his leg out needlessly. It's, it looks to me a little bit like if you play MT for a pro Evo that you've switched to the wrong player to tackle. So he seems to be tackling space, but Bertie cleverly kicks his sort of trailing leg and goes down. Looked a bit of a dive, but there was contact, so it's always going to be given. Viali uh, looked to break his duck with his first goal for his country in 14 months. He goes low with Miola going the wrong way, but hits the post. And not only that, it rebounds well clear. And again, probably a good thing it rebounds well clear because the Americans, I'm not sure if they know you're allowed to follow in a penalty. There's about four Italians all charging into the box. And when you look back at it, there are zero Americans. So they're very lucky with that one. But essentially, Italy squander a few more chances and the stadium at capacity of 73,000 gets a little bit of a fright laid on as uh, Walter Wenger makes a sort of a rare stylistic save he, he, it's a free kick that comes in originally he makes a, a pretty solid save but it rebounds out to the onrushing uh, Peter Vermes uh, Vermes hits a low effort as Wenger rushes out and it's, it's, it comes off the perineum I'm going to say it like that I mean the ball hits his gooch and, and rolls to a stop before the line as the Italian defender lofts it clear so if not for uh, Wenger's gooch Italy might be in a bit of trouble here but it finishes 1-0 and did you just call Walter Zenga Walter Wenger I don't think so, but uh, if I did, it was a Freudian slip. Okay. Being adult by ni- 90s dance music. That's it. That's exactly going it. To a, going to a beat there, are you? <laughs> and once again, it's not really as comfortable as they would, would want. Vicini's straight out in the press with talking about the USA team, saying, that's not the same team we saw against the Czechs last week. And you're like, yeah, it's, the problem is not that. The problem is it's your same team that you put out that, that barely have, you know, barely able to slot in a goal, essentially. So, you know, get it together, really. I mean, pointing the finger at the USA going, they played well. Let's get on to the Irish camp. What's the latest uh, ha- happening down that way? Yeah, well, I think everyone who's, everyone who's hopeful of a different approach against Egypt sounds like they're going to be disappointed. Um, Jack Charlton is very critical of, of, the Dutch, of the way the Dutch played against Egypt, that they didn't protect their midfield well enough. Um, he doesn't signal any any more progressive style that's uh, likely to be deployed in, in Ireland's game against Egypt. He says they don't like our style of play. They don't like the ball hit at them from the back. So I think kind of size all around the, the press rooms of Ireland after hearing that. And um, the Egyptians are pretty confident. Hossam Hassan is targeting Mick McCarthy. He says, McCarthy is slow. I'm quick. I'm going to roast him. And that's all there is to it. 
Um, so yeah, but <laughs> that said, McCarthy doesn't seem to his his place doesn't seem to be in any danger. Um, if, I, if if I know Big Nick, he'll take that well. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think it about doesn't. It. <laughs> it possibly doesn't speak very well to Hassan's research either, because I think Morin was comfortably the slower of the two at this stage. So. Mm. I'm not quite sure why he's why he's picking on our our Mick, but uh, yeah, he could very well be getting a getting a hand around the throat in a couple of days. Classic Mick McCarthy move. Um, Ireland are eleven to ten to beat Egypt, two to one the draw, and Egypt five to one. So I think that possibly speaks to the confidence of Irish punters more than bookies. But we'll see how how that uh, how that develops in a couple of days. I mean, looking at news elsewhere, it, it should be said when we talked about 90s dance music a few minutes ago, you can't touch this by MC Hammer Peaks at number eight in the charts. I mean, is there any more, more 90s, more famous 90s track than that, Dave? Ice Ice Baby. Just a couple of other things are happening a bit more parochially. Um, Lord Terence O'Neill, who was the former Prime Minister of Northern Ireland between 63 and 69, really important figure in, in Irish history. He passed away um, on the 14th of June. And also news came out again from Northern Ireland about um, alcohol-fueled mutiny at an army barracks after the Ireland-England game. Um, two soldiers of the Royal Hampshire Regiment had climbed onto the roof of um, Ebrington Barracks in Derry for some hours. Um, claims that they were asking for a helicopter and £40,000 were denied by the Ministry of Defence, um, who said it was simply related to football. They were frustrated by England's performance and it was really no big deal. So I think the British Army is the only one in the world where you can mutiny, <laughs> and as long as the only aggravating factors are football and alcohol, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very in keeping with, you know, how the public viewed the English football fans at this point as well, to be fair. Plus, so I think the soldiers are doing a lot less harm on the roof than they would have been on the streets of Derry. Tomorrow we look ahead to, uh, well, a big game for Austria and Czechoslovakia, as well as West Germany back in action against poor little UAE. Should be a tough one for them. Incredibile di Zenga, che ci evita la beffa del gol. Grandissimo Zenga.